What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...by the candle, I observed at the further end of the chamber a large four-poster bedstead. I immediately noticed something very curious about it. I turned round to the old housekeeper. Did you really say that Mr. Cressley was sleeping in this room? I asked. Yes, sir. He must be in bed some hours ago. I left him in the library, hunting up old papers, and he told me he was tired and was going to rest early. He is not in the bed, I said. Not in the bed, sir? Good God! A note of horror came into the man's voice. What in the name of fortune is the matter with the bed? As the man spoke, I rushed forward. Was it really a bed at all? If it was, I had never seen a stranger one. Upon it, covering it from head to foot, was a thick mattress, from the sides of which tassels were hanging. There was no human being lying on the mattress, nor was it made up with sheets and blankets like an ordinary bed. I glanced above me. The posts at the four corners of the bedstead stood like masts. I saw at once what had happened. The canopy had descended upon the bed. Was Cressley beneath? With a shout I desired the old man to come forward, and between us we seized the mattress, and exerting all our force tried to drag it from the bed. In a moment I saw it was fixed by cords that held it tightly in its place. Whipping out my knife I severed these, and then hurled the heavy weight from the bed. Beneath lay Cressley, still as death. I put my hand on his heart and uttered a thankful exclamation. It was still beating. I was in time. I had saved him. After all, nothing else mattered during that supreme moment of thankfulness. A few seconds longer beneath that smothering mass, and he would have been dead. By what a strange sequence of events had I come to his side just in the nick of time. "'We must take him from this room before he recovers consciousness,' I said to the old man, who was surprised and horror-stricken. "'But, sir, in the name of heaven, what has happened?' "'Let us examine the bed, and I will tell you,' I said. I held up the candle as I spoke. A glance at the posts was all sufficient to show me how the deed had been done. The canopy above, on which the heavy mattress had been placed, was held in position by strong cords, which ran through pulleys at the top of the posts. These were thick and heavy enough to withstand the strain. When the cords were released, the canopy, with its heavy weight, must quickly descend upon the unfortunate sleeper, who would be smothered beneath it in a few seconds. Who had planned and executed this murderous device? There was not a soul to be seen. "'We will take Mr. Cressley into another room and then come back,' I said to the housekeeper. "'Is there one where we can place him?' "'Yes, sir,' was the instant reply. "'There's a room on the next floor which was got ready for you.' 
"'Capital,' I answered. "'We will convey him there at once.' We did so, and after using some restoratives he came to himself. When he saw me he gazed at me with an expression of horror on his face. "'Am I alive, or is it a dream?' he said. "'You are alive, but you have had a narrow escape of your life,' I answered. I then told him how I had found him. He sat up as I began to speak, and as I continued my narrative his eyes dilated with an expression of terror which I have seldom seen equaled. "'You do not know what I have lived through,' he said at last. "'I only wonder I retain my reason. Oh, that awful room! No wonder men died and went mad there!' "'Well, speak, Cressley, I am all attention,' I said. "'You will be the better when you have unburdened yourself.' "'I can tell you what happened in a few words,' he answered. You know I mentioned the horrid sort of presentiment I had about coming here at all. That first night I could not make up my mind to sleep in the house, so I went to the little inn at Brent. I received your telegram yesterday, and went to meet you by the last train. When you did not come I had a tussle with myself, but I could think of no decent excuse for deserting the old place, and so came back. My intention was to sit up the greater part of the night arranging papers in the library." The days are long now, and I thought I might go to bed when morning broke. I was irresistibly sleepy, however, and went up to my room soon after one o'clock. I was determined to think of nothing unpleasant, and got quickly into bed, taking the precaution first to lock the door. I placed the key under my pillow, and being very tired, soon fell into a heavy sleep. I awoke suddenly, after what seemed but a few minutes, to find the room dark, for the moon must just have set. I was very sleepy, and I wondered vaguely why I had awakened, and then suddenly, without warning, and without cause, a monstrous, unreasonable fear seized me. An indefinable intuition told me that I was not alone, that some horrible presence was near. I do not think the certainty of immediate death could have inspired me with a greater dread than that which suddenly came upon me. I dared not stir, hand nor foot. My powers of reason and resistance were paralyzed. At last, by an immense effort, I nerved myself to see the worst. Slowly, very slowly, I turned my head and opened my eyes. Against the tapestry at the further corner of the room, in the dark shadow, stood a figure. It stood out quite boldly, emanating from itself a curious light. I had no time to think of phosphorus. It never occurred to me that any trick was being played upon me. I felt certain that I was looking at my ancestor, Barrington Cressley, who had come back to torture me, in order to make me give up possession. The figure was that of a man, six feet high and broad in proportion. The face was bent forward and turned toward me, but in the uncertain light I could neither see the features nor the expression. The figure stood still as a statue, and was evidently watching me. At the end of a moment, which seemed to me an eternity, it began to move, and with a slow and silent step approached me. I lay perfectly still, every muscle braced, and watched the figure between half-closed eyelids. It was now within a foot or two of me, and I could distinctly see the face. What was my horror to observe that it wore the features of my agent Murdoch? Murdoch! I cried, the word coming in a strangled sound from my throat. The next instant he had sprung upon me. I heard a noise of something rattling above, and saw a huge shadow descending upon me. I did not know what it was and I felt certain that I was being murdered. The next moment all was lost in unconsciousness. Bell, how queer you look! Was it? Was it Murdoch? But it could not have been. He was very ill in bed at Liverpool. 
What in the name of goodness was the awful horror through which I had lived? I can assure you on one point, I answered, it was no ghost, and as to Murdoch, it is more than likely that you did see him. I then told the poor fellow what I had discovered with regard to the agent, and also my firm conviction that Wickham was at the bottom of it. Cressley's astonishment was beyond bounds, and I saw at first that he scarcely believed me, but when I said that it was my intention to search the house, he accompanied me. We both, followed by Mitchell, returned to the ill-fated room. But though we examined the tapestry and panelling, we could not find the secret means by which the villain had obtained access to the chamber. "'The carriage which brought me here is still waiting just outside the lodge gates,' I said. "'What do you say to leaving this place at once, and returning at least as far as Carlton? We might spend the remainder of the night there, and take the first train to Liverpool.' "'Anything to get away,' said Cressley. "'I do not feel I can ever come back to Cressley Hall again.' "'You feel that now, but by and by your sensations will be different,' I answered. As I spoke, I called Mitchell to me. I desired him to go at once to the lodge gates, and asked the driver of the wagonette to come down to the hall. This was done, and half an hour afterwards Cressley and I were on our way back to Carlton. Early the next morning we went to Liverpool. There we visited the police— and I asked to have a warrant taken out for the apprehension of Murdoch. The superintendent, on hearing my tale, suggested that we should go at once to Murdoch's house in Melville Gardens. We did so, but it was empty, Murdoch, his wife, and Wickham having thought it best to decamp. The superintendent insisted, however, on having the house searched, and in a dark closet at the top we came upon a most extraordinary contrivance. This was no less than an exact representation of the agent's head and neck in wax. In it was a wonderfully skilful imitation of a human larynx, which by a cunning mechanism of clockwork could be made exactly to simulate the breathing and low moaning of a human being. This the man had, of course, utilized with the connivance of his wife and Wickham in order to prove an alibi, and the deception was so complete that only my own irresistible curiosity could have enabled me to discover the secret. That night the police were fortunate enough to capture both Murdoch and Wickham in a Liverpool slum. Seeing that all was up, the villains made complete confession, and the whole of the black plot was revealed. It appeared that two adventurers, the worst form of scoundrels, knew of Cressley's great discovery in Western Australia, and had made up their minds to forestall him in his claim. One of these men had come some months ago to England, and while in Liverpool had made the acquaintance of Murdoch. The other man, Wickham, accompanied Cressley on the voyage in order to keep him in view, and worm as many secrets as possible from him. When Cressley spoke of his superstition with regard to the turret room, it immediately occurred to Wickham to utilize the room for his destruction. Murdoch proved a ready tool in the hands of the rogues. They offered him an enormous bribe, and then the three between them evolved the intricate and subtle details of the crime. It was arranged that Murdoch was to commit the ghastly deed, and for this purpose he was sent down quietly to Brent, disguised as a journeyman, the day before Cressley went to the hall. The men had thought that Cressley would prove an easy prey, but they distrusted me from the first. Their relief was great when they discovered that I could not accompany Cressley to the hall. And had he spent the first night there, the murder would have been committed, but his nervous terrors inducing him to spend the night at Brent foiled this attempt. Seeing that I was returning to Liverpool, the men now thought that they must use me for their own devices, and made up their minds to decoy me into Murdoch's bedroom 
in order that I might see the wax figure, their object, of course, being that I should be forced to prove an alibi in case Murdoch was suspected of the crime. The telegram which reached me at Prince's Hotel on my return from London was sent by one of the ruffians, who was lying in ambush at Brent. When I left Murdoch's house, the wife informed Wickham that she thought from my manner I suspected something. He had already taken steps to induce the cab-driver to take me in a wrong direction, in order that I should miss my train, and it was not until he visited the stables outside the Prince's Hotel that he found that I intended to go by road. He then played his last card, when he telegraphed to the inn at Carlton to stop the horses. By Murdoch's means, Wickham and his confederate had the run of the rooms at the hall ever since the arrival of Wickham from Australia, and they had rigged up the top of the old bedstead in the way I have described. There was, needless to say, a secret passage at the back of the tapestry, which was so cunningly hidden in the panelling as to baffle all ordinary means of discovery. End of chapter 6 End of A Master of Mysteries Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.